Well, if you would, turn in your uh, scriptures to uh, Acts chapter 6, the book of Acts chapter 6. We're going to continue on our look in this uh, chapter, in this book. You may have noticed uh, the title of this series is God at Work in the Book of Acts. Now, I'll mind you that I'm probably not going to get a lot of points for creativity, and that's fine. But the title does serve a purpose to say to us and remind us that God is at work in this book. He's the, uh, the, the powerful force, the all-powerful force, instigator, uh, initiator behind all that we read about in this book. And I get that from a couple places, but particularly from how the book of Acts starts. God tells us through his word, through Jesus, he commands the disciples, the apostles, go. Uh, go into Jerusalem, go into Judea, Samaria, and all the outer points of the world with this message, message of resurrection, it's good news about hope, and so on and so forth. Go and do this. And as we read through the gospel, excuse me, the book of Acts, particularly we see evidence of that, that God is at work uh, orchestrating that commandment to come true. In many places, every once in a while, Luke, the author of Acts, will make mention of, of numbers. You know, these many disciples were gathered for this, or there was an increase in numbers, or this is how many people responded to the gospel, so on and so forth. In, in the chapter that we're going to read, chapter 6, the beginning, there's reference to an increase in numbers. And then halfway through, there's another reference to an increase in numbers uh, that the church is experiencing. But there's also something else about uh, this title, God is at work. Acts chapter 6 is the beginning of, of a turning point uh, in this story. Again, the commandment, Jesus saying, go, start in Jerusalem, go in Judea, Samaria, and keep going. Concentric circles, just keep pushing the gospel out uh, in new and new uh, boundaries. The disciples or the apostles and the church have done well with that in these chapters. If you are here last week with us, uh, in, in chapter 5, there was a reference to how all Jerusalem was filled with the teaching of the apostles and of the church. I mean, wouldn't that be great to have that said about Manning? The whole city is filled with that teaching. They're doing great at reaching Jerusalem, but there's been no plans. We don't read about any initiatives to go beyond that, to push the gospel beyond those boundaries, so to speak, until we get to chapter 6. And more specifically, until we're introduced to a man named Stephen, who we're going to find is the first martyr. And because of what happens to him, what Jesus commanded in chapter 1 is going to begin uh, to find its uh, fulfillment. So in light of that, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 6, we'll read uh, uh, all of chapter 6, 1 through 15. Hear God's word to us. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurius, 
Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Verse 8, And Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition rose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia in Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. They saw his face was like the face of an angel. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. Let's pray to him. Father God, we ask that you would bless us with more of your word, that you would teach us that you would speak to us. We come to you with many burdens, circumstances. We come distracted. We come tired. We come anxious. We come angry. We come with all these things and ask that your word would remind us of all that we need to hear and embrace. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. I bet if I was to ask you what your favorite car was or is, you could probably say so pretty quickly. Maybe you're driving your favorite car right now. Or maybe you look back fondly at this was my favorite car and just your stage in life says you can't drive that kind of car right now. One of my favorite cars was a uh, 1996 uh, Cherokee Sport. It was red. Uh, It was a small SUV. Uh, It was pretty quick. It was pretty compact. And we just loved it. I remember one day in the town where we were living, we went to um, downtown area because they had an outdoor concert that they put on every couple weeks or so, and it was one of those Friday night kind of deals, bring some chairs, bring something to eat, and just come and just just chill out and relax. And so we got there, uh, not really late, but not really early either, and we pull into the parking lot, and it's one of those parking lots where the, the spaces are rather narrow because they're trying to fit as many cars into this lot as possible. So we slide into one, and we park next to this big white van. Uh, one of those big old vans that doesn't have any windows, and it just looks like more of a work van. And so we get out and kind of squeeze out between the cars, and we find our spot and just enjoy a great time, great night, great weather. And we get back to the car, throw our stuff in the back of this red Cherokee, and I go to my door side, driver's side door to open it up, and right there in the middle of my door, this is huge dent fresh and it didn't add to the car it took away from it okay and you could just tell the car next to me was in a hurry and they opened up their door and it just slammed into my car there was no note uh, 
probably because they were in a hurry. I was given the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you've been in a situation like that where something's been dinged up on your car and it's just, you don't know what happened and nobody left any kind of note because they were in some kind of hurry. As we think about Acts chapter 6 here and as we look at all these verses and all the story that's before us and what's happening to the church, my desire is not to hurry through it, but with some patience and some diligence, uh, dig at it a little bit. Because there's, there's so much in the details. If we're aware of what uh, is being communicated, there's so much there for us uh, to embrace. And we're, we'll be so much better off if we don't approach it in a hurried way. And so here's what I want to do with the passage. Talk about three things. It's always three things, right? I want to talk about the problem. I want to talk about the solution. And then I want to talk about uh, the outcome. Okay, The problem, the solution, and then the, the outcome that we see. First, there's the problem. Find it in verse 1. Numbers are increasing. The church is doing great. Uh, you know, we're, we're, you can see that more people means more busyness, means more activity. But there's a complaint that's come up. There's some murmuring, murmuring, murmuring coming up. Okay? The daily distribution of food is not going out like it should. In this church, generally, you have two groups of people, so to speak. You've got the, the Greek-speaking Jews who go to a Greek-speaking synagogue who are now converted to Christianity, and you've got the Hebrew-speaking Jews who go to a Hebrew-speaking synagogue, and now they're Christians as well, and they're together in one group, one church, so to speak, one body. But there's a problem. It's been the habit of this early church, particularly if we look at the beginning of chapter 5, for individuals to sell their stuff and lay it at the apostles' feet, and they would use that to distribute it as they saw need. And we said you had to do it, okay, to be a part of the church. It was just uh, the, the spirit that was there, people giving away, giving away their stuff uh, to do this. And there's a group, uh, these Greek-speaking Jews, who are not getting their daily distribution like they think they should be. And they begin to murmur, they begin to complain. And think of that daily distribution as just... Uh, proceeds or money or help that went to widows and went to poor folks that just had this need. It was the church saying, we, we understand what's going on and we want to, to help fill that gap uh, for you and, and with you. And so there's a party that begins to complain about this. And I don't think the problem is lack of stuff, lack of resources to distribute What's dangerous and what could be really dangerous for this church, if it festers, is the murmuring, is the complaining, is the disruption that could come about because this need is not being met. And it gives one side uh, something to seek their teeth in, so to speak, to, to have a grievance and to bring about some great disunity. And you can imagine how dangerous this could be if this is not taken care of. You remember in Exodus, the story about the Israelites. They freed from Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness. And there's a point in their life together where they become very frustrated with Moses, very frustrated with their circumstances, and they begin to complain. They begin to sow seeds of disruption and disunity. And you read about that story, and in that account, you see how dangerous it was for them, how bad it was that these things were happening in their midst, brought about disunity. But take a step back and think about this complaining 
and put it in a spiritual context, if you will. This is a new church. It's a new group of people. Something new and and life-changing is happening. Something that they've never seen before is taking shape. And put that complaining in that context. And you can imagine how the evil one would want to use that to destroy this young church. To destroy this, this new movement that's taking shape so it doesn't happen. You can imagine how a darkness could kind of seep in through this disunity and wreak havoc. We've seen it, uh, this kind of plan of the enemy or his um, uh, skills maybe to try and destroy this young church. First, it happened through flat out just persecution. This is what we've been spending some of our time with since we've gotten to chapter 3 in the book of Acts. The religious leaders pulling these men aside and saying, in effect, no more evangelism. No more talking about Jesus. If you do, we're going to arrest you. Things are going to be bad for you. The church pushes back. They pray. Filled with a new sense of faithfulness and boldness, they continue to preach. They're put in prison, but God releases them from that. And you can see how the enemy is using that persecution to shrink this church, to shrink this movement, but it doesn't work. The enemy can also use hypocrisy. Inconsistency on the part of the believers, the people present in this congregation. Individuals who say one thing or identify themselves with one way of living, one philosophy of life or one religion or one faith, but their lifestyles uh, don't mirror that. They demonstrate something different. We didn't look at this passage in detail, but the beginning of chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira uh, sell their stuff, but they lie about it. They lie about the proceeds. And the Holy Spirit, at the end of the story, basically finds them out, discovers them, and they're struck dead. It's weeded out. You can imagine if, if hypocrisy was running rampant in this new church, this new movement, this Christianity, how it would just destroy it. They would lose all credibility in the community. Yeah, you talk about Jesus and you talk about change, but I don't see it in your life. All I see is just you say one thing, but something different is reflected uh, going on there. And now we see this third uh, scheme, so to speak. Uh, let's use complaining. Let's use murmuring. Let's, use, let's sow some discord and sow some disunity. Let's bring division so this movement doesn't flourish, so this new church doesn't grow and become powerful, so it actually doesn't spread beyond uh, the borders here of Jerusalem. You can imagine how devastating that kind of division would be. But with each case, God has responded, seemingly. When the church is being persecuted... God infuses his leadership with, certainly with, with signs and wonders of what he's doing, but with a sense of boldness and faithfulness. When hypocrisy comes up, the Spirit comes ever-present to weed out that hypocrisy. And now with these complaints, with this potential division, we see the solution being new leadership or a new type of leadership to meet this demand. Now as a church, maybe, maybe in our conversations, as we talk about the Bible and Christianity, uh, we don't talk about the enemy a lot, but that doesn't mean that he's not there. That doesn't mean that he's not powerful, that he's working against us, that his desire is to bring about hypocrisy, disunity, uh, to, to, shrink, to shrink us back from being as bold as we could be uh, in the culture and with our friends and peers about the things of the church. That's the problem. Let's think about uh, the solution. What's the solution? Well, as we alluded to a moment ago, they come up with something practical. They said, we just want a new type of leadership. 
You get the picture that, of the apostles just gathering up the church, gathering up all present and say, here's the problem and here's our proposal. Would you find men who can serve in this position? Because we want to keep uh, the preaching of the word and prayer forefront in our ministries. We want that to be all present. We want to still be doing That's what we feel called to. That's what we want to do. And so this is our solution, that you'd raise up men filled with the Spirit who can serve in this capacity. It's like the apostles are saying, yes, there is this, this legitimate need. And uh, there's need to have somebody that really follows through on this. We still need to keep doing this, this daily distribution. It's very important that we do it. But just because there's a need for it doesn't mean that we need to do it. There's somebody else that's probably equipped better and more fully to do this work. And the church says, amen, let's do it. And they raise up these seven or so men to fill this position. This is the, the chapter that, uh, that we go to as a church as we think about deacons and their responsibility and, and their calling. We, we go, this is one of the passages that we go to, that God would raise up men filled with the Spirit, full of faith, to serve in this capacity. And as they're talking about this, this new role of serving, the, the apostles never appeal to say, hey, find the guys that are professionally adequate to do this, or professionally skilled to do it, that have the resume. They say, no, certainly that's a factor in it, but it's men who love the Lord, men who are full of the Spirit and can serve faithfully to bring this about. Think about their spiritual resume. And, of course, they agree, and they move forward with that. And in your mind, you're probably thinking, reasoning, yes, the Word of God is important, yes, in these uh, taking care of the, the more practical uh, personal needs of people in the church that's needed as well. And I understand, and I agree with, yes, the Word and prayer should be forefront. That should be first. But if I pressed you, maybe you, I don't know why that is. I know that's important, but why is the Word so important? Well, funny you ask, let me give you two answers to that, okay? The first one is this. Uh, it's only through the preaching of the word that we see our true problems. It's only through the word that we see our true hope. It's only through, our, through the word that we see our true troubles. Think about it like this. Here are the apostles. They're getting this pushback. You know, you, you've got to do a better job of, of getting this stuff out to people. And you know when there's crisis that comes into your own life, something immediate comes up on your, your screen, that's, it becomes all-consuming. That's what you focus on, dealing with this problem, dealing with this situation. And more often than not, we find the things that still should have a priority in our lives, they kind of slide uh, down the, the priority list, and they kind of get ignored or marginalized. And you can imagine the, the splash, the opportunity that the apostles have. They could hear this news of, hey, we need to do better at, at meeting these, these needs and doing these, these deeds of mercy. They could reason, you know what? This could be a real avenue into the community. We could get this great reputation of, of meeting the practical needs of people, of being, this, of being very compassionate. That could really give us a lot of traction, a lot of juice in the community. Let's do that. But they say, no, that's not what we're going to do. That's not who we are we're going to stick with and hold to the priority of the word and of prayer, that we are going to keep doing these things because they're all so necessary. Think about it like this. Why are there widows? Why is there poverty that would give rise to this daily distribution of stuff? Many answers that we could come up with that, Very, many circumstantial answers. 
But at the end of the day, the ultimate answer is what? That we live in a broken world, that things are falling apart, that we're broken people, that sin and death reign. But Scripture, the preaching of the Word, comes in and enters that gap and says, this is your ultimate problem. You need a Savior. This is what you really need. Yes, distributing those things is important, it's necessary, and we do that because we love our neighbor. But we do that rooted in all that God is for us and what he tells us and reveals to us through his word. The other reason uh, the word of God is is important, it should be central, is because it's God speaking to us. It sounds so obvious, but the truth of that is so weighty. Think about it. The Bible, the one printed in your, uh, in your book in the, the pew pocket in front of you, uh, the one that you can read online, the one that's printed with the beautiful, beautiful gold leaves, that's God speaking to us. That's his word to us. It's not inspiring stories. It's not a collection of, of wisdom. It's not a collection of uh, things that are inspirational for us. It's God speaking truth to us. And if God is speaking, he wants you to hear. He wants you to know. He wants you to understand. It's like God is saying, here's my word, and and use it to peel back that kind of the curtain and understand how the world really works, what's really going on. Use my scripture to understand this is who you are and where you came from. This is what the problem is. This is what the solution to the problem is. This is where things are going. It gives us real hope. It gives us real truth, something that we can live our lives based upon, stability. And so my question for you is, it's an obvious question, what are you doing with God's word? And I don't mean, what are you doing with God's word on Sunday morning? What are you doing with God's word during the week? Where's your Bible? Where is it in your house? What are you doing with it? What are you reading in it? What is God communicating to you? What is he telling you? Do you understand that God is speaking to you? That he's communicating to you true truth. And he wants you to know. He wants you to walk by faith. And know the reality of all that he is. That's the solution. Let's think about uh, the outcome. And there's two outcomes I want us to focus in on. The first is, verse 7, the word increased And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. This is Luke giving us a summary statement. This is what happened after that meeting. Time goes by. The apostles continue to do what they're called to do, and the church continues to do what they're called to do in these new roles and new uh, way of doing things. And the word of God increases. It continues to go into Jerusalem and gain influence there. But did you catch the, the last part there? The priests were believing. That these Jewish priests were believing. And you may think, well, that's kind of interesting that Luke identifies them. Aren't those the kind of people that were persecuting the church? Aren't these the kind of people that were saying, you know, disciples, apostles, you can't talk about Christ. That this Messiah thing that you are articulating is not right. But these priests are embracing the faith. Those that, that know about these things and know about these times and know about more specifically about this stuff will say that there are a number of priests that kind of rotate in and out of Jerusalem, uh, working in the temple, doing things there, 
and they'll rotate out and they'll go back uh, to their provinces, to their homes and their home synagogues and do uh, their ministry there. And you have to wonder, if these priests are being exposed to Christianity, being exposed to this new church uh, that's coming up, and as they see and certainly hear the word preached and hear the case for a Messiah based upon the Old Testament, but also as they see the love and care they're taking for one another, the daily distribution of stuff, how widows and, and poor people are being taken care of, and it's ingrained to them as, as Jewish people. These, the, the care that they're showing for widows and, and, and the poor is nothing new that comes with Christianity. It's part of the Old Testament. It's part of their DNA Israelites, it's there. And you can imagine these priests seeing this and being attracted to it and winning favor for them and hearts and minds and faith being won through this. And I think on some level it speaks to the power of the word preached and deeds ministry. For example, think about it like this. When I was in high school, my family moved. I had to move to a new location, which meant a new school for me. And so imagine being in a situation where you are, have to make friends with a bunch of people who have all their friends already because they've been buddies since kindergarten, and you have to fit in uh, to those cliques and to that world. It would be very difficult. It would be very uncomfortable rather quickly. But there was a fellow there that befriended me, and uh, we got to know each other uh, more and more. And after a while, he invited me to his youth group. And after a while, he started talking to me about the gospel and about the Bible. And the reason he could talk to me about those things is because he showed concern for me beforehand, because he befriended me. It wasn't a project to him. It wasn't a number to him. But he took an interest in me. And because of that, there was a lot of space and there was a lot of interest to hear the gospel. All that to say, that deeds of mercy loving our neighbor, showing compassion, meeting felt needs, provides us an incredible opportunity to love our neighbor and at the same time talk about the gospel, talk about the truth and reality of God in our lives. The second thing, and I'll I'll close uh, with this, the second outcome uh, from it here, has to do with a man named Stephen. And I kind of tipped my hat at him uh, beforehand when we were talking about... um, this passage and, and where it's going. He's one of the seven named, one of the seven men that are identified by Luke in this passage. Uh, he talks about Philip some, and he talks about some other ones uh, that we'll see later on uh, in this uh, story of, of Acts. But he talks about Stephen and the new type of leadership that's there. He's a man full of faith, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He's been designated for this job, that he stands out. And you read further along, as the word of God is increasing, that Stephen is an incredible apologist. That he's, he's doing an incredible job uh, defending the faith and doing these signs and wonders. And people try to push back on him, but they can't. They can't get any traction with him because the power of the Spirit that's working in Stephen's life, that all, all the arguments fall to the side, and finally they've got to bring um, you know, sketchy stuff to bring this guy and control him. And that's what they do. And when you get to chapter 7, Stephen is giving this long speech before them. And in the chapter 7, Stephen is killed. He's the first martyr that we read about in the church, the first one. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, 
bring the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But we don't see that happening at this point. After Stephen's death, after Acts chapter 7, the gospel goes out. It's moved out of Jerusalem because the church is now being persecuted. Because there's been incredible physical pushback upon them and all that they are doing. But as we move through the book of Acts, you're going to find the church not shrinking, but growing and expanding and increasing. It's how the church grows. He uses difficulty. He uses persecution. He uses spilled blood. And he uses men and women filled with the Spirit to grow his church. My question for us is, what does that mean for us as we think about our own church We think about our own city that we live in, our own context of of talking about and describing the gospel. How is God going to grow his church? He's going to use our difficulties, and he's going to use us as we're filled with the Spirit and walking in boldness and faithfulness to him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you in awe of how you grow your church. It's not how we would say it should happen. Uh, You don't use the means and ways that we would think would make sense. But you use difficulty. You use men and women uh, devoted to you. You use gifts of mercy, deeds of mercy. You use your word. You use prayers. You just work. Would you help us to be a people faithful to you, faithful to your scriptures, faithful to walk in obedience, and that you would bless us with a greater presence in this community. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.